and explosions rock the camp on average of every 20 seconds for the first three hours of the battle. It was the, the absolute urgency that we might show up and there might not be a cop left for us to retake. Like that was that was very much on the table. Um, yeah, well, I remember when, the, when we the, got told. That's right, the attack the pilots. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were there in their in their um, uh, Apaches were smoking yep. because they were so riddled with holes uh, on on the bellies of them. And I remember talking to one of them. I was like, "How's it going?" And he's got this uh, really nervous look on his face, and he's just, "I don't, I just don't know if they're going to make yep. it." And that was after the first run. We were looking at how close you can drop 2,000-pound bombs. Um, how close, right, is too close. And I mean, you're dropping this stuff just outside. Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. In this episode, we'll hear about the 2009 Battle of Cop Keating, and it takes sort of a unique form. While we usually feature one-on-one -on -one interviews with guests who walk us through their role in a particular combat event, what you're about to hear is more of a discussion between three people, all involved in the battle. Stony Portis was the commander of Bravo Troop 361 Cav, who manned combat outpost Keating along with a small contingent of Afghan National Army soldiers. Cop Keating was a small and isolated outpost tucked precariously and vulnerably in the rugged mountains of Nuristan province in eastern Afghanistan. Andrew Bunderman was as a lieutenant and the senior officer on the ground on the day of a massive Taliban attack against the cop, the ground force commander during the ensuing battle. MWI's Jake Moraldi led one of the two platoons assigned as the quick reaction force that would fight its way down a mountain to relieve the cop's defenders. Eight US soldiers were killed in the battle and many more wounded. Two soldiers received the Medal of Honor for their actions, and at least nine received Silver Stars. In this episode, you'll hear the three discuss the battle, their roles, and those of the soldiers they led. Just two quick notes. First, there is just a little bit of swearing in this episode. And second, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Alright, here's Stony Portis, Andrew Bunderman, and Jake Moraldi. Major Stony Portis and Mr. Andrew Bunderman, thank you for coming in and talking to us about your, your Cop Keating experience. Um, what I want to lead off with is actually from, from my own experience being in, in the battle space before you guys even arrived uh, into Afghanistan, and it was going into my battalion S2 office and seeing the big map of N2KL, Nangahar, Nuristan, Kunar Logman on the wall in the S2's office. And it had all the little cops and fobs populated on there. And I saw Cop Keating as that like most northern remote place and thinking like, wow, I wonder what that place seems like or what it, what it is, what it, what's going on there. Because it is way the hell out there. And I'm curious what, what you guys thought when you showed up. I know, Andrew, you were there, for, you were there longer and got there first. But what was that first sort of initial impression when you got up there? You know, it's bizarre, right? I, um, so one, you, you show up in the middle of the night. So um, 
in order to get in and out, everything was done under certain alum conditions. So it's it's dark nights, and you go in and um, out on a Chinook. You're down in this LZ. There's water rushing everywhere. You're, you're coming off quick. The LZ's not inside the cop, so you got people shuffling you inside, right? You're, you know, um, and maybe I don't know, 15 or so of us went the first night, and then 15 are back filling from the unit we're replacing. And you can't really see anything, right? It's, go meet a few people for for a few minutes, and then it was, hey, just just chill out. We'll kind of give you the lay of the land the next day, and show you know, kind of wake up the next morning, start walking around, and you're going for you know, you're just amazed. One, it's actually a very beautiful area, mm-hmm. right? It's gorgeous. You got these these mountain peaks in the background. Um, there's still some snow on in in, in some of those higher elevations, um, but you're just you're blown away by how close you are to the side of the, the the steep cliffs and the mountain and just the terrain overwhelms you. Um, I think that was my, my first impression. Um, so yeah, that, and I, I guess I was fortunate I wasn't, one of my battle buddies got lost looking for the, uh, the tube at about two or 3 a.m. Um, that night. So he spent about 40 minutes wandering around, ended up in, in the ANA side of the camp before he, he finally just decided to you ask somebody for help getting back, but uh. <laughs> well, it's it's one of those things you hear about Afghanistan being you know mountainous. It's kind of people's impression of it, but then you do you get up to especially in the higher Hindu Kush, and it is incredible. It like, really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I remember my first time coming in. I I came from above with uh, a Chinook into Op Fritchie, and then uh, patrolled down for my first time in and, and as we continued to descend lower and lower into the bowl uh, where Cop Keating was situated, I just remember thinking to myself, oh, this is, this is a great place to attack this, this cop from, right? And then, you know, you look behind you, there's a great egress route for uh, an enemy fighter and then you go another 50 feet and then there's another great spot with cover and concealment that you can shoot down onto the cop again and again and again and then when you get to the bottom and you just look up uh, you can really quickly get a crick in your neck from uh, staring up at all directions uh, when you're at the bottom of this bowl yeah Yeah, and it is it's good there's good places to shoot at you from basically everywhere right as you're coming down Um, so you guys you guys were at Fort Carson before you came here it's sort of similar right the terrain that you're looking at at, at Fort Carson, kind of Rocky Mountain, scrubby trees. I don't know, did yeah. that prepare you at all? Did you have that mental picture in your head when you're headed up there? I mean, I think you knew, you could, you're like, hey, we're in the right spot to train for this. Um, from a terrain-wise, you know, there's some things you can go and do, right? But, I mean, physical fitness is physical fitness, right? Make sure people are prepared and in shape. I think that prepared us. Um, I think we did some some really good exercises, both on, on Fort Carson and Pinion Canyon, that we utilized um, the terrain in ways that we thought we might see, which which certainly helped um, kind of honing in, you, you know, modifying the standard battle drills to understand how terrain may affect decision-making and, and employment of certain weapon systems and things like that. So I think it assisted in, in that fashion uh, to a certain extent. And then the elevation, I think, certainly helps, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, soldiers being at, at a similar elevation for a long time, I think, uh, assisted in some of the fit, physical fitness aspects of what we were doing. 
Yeah, I mean, you could speak better to that than I can. I, I was the new guy. I, I <laughs> had uh, been in command for less than two weeks when the battle began and uh, had joined the unit, uh, you know, the brigade only a few months before in a different battalion um, as their operations officer. So uh, I know that one thing was for certain, and that was that uh, we focused on physical fitness prior to that deployment as well as the others. So. Yeah, so I'm curious what that what that was like. Because again, Major Porce, you were, you know, you showed up two weeks before the battle. Andrew, you had been there for what four four or five months before the battle, so you had a pretty good understanding of you know what what the battle rhythm was like, what it a normal day felt like, what operations looked like. It wasn't like you had just shown up. So what did that what did that kind of feel like for you? What was the day-to-day, what was steady state at the Cobb? You know, um, sometimes mundane, sometimes not. But, you know, it's a mixture of force protection. You know, it, it, you know, it pains you sometimes to say that in, in some ways our mission gradually grew more towards force protection as the primary goal and, and maintaining that piece of the earth to keep, I guess, the commerce open and, and really the... Um, you know, the ISAF, maybe I want to say, kind of that that piece open and allow leverage into the area, right, mm-hmm. to, into the populace. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't get a, a lot of opportunity to, to spend time in that and really build those relationships. But um, I think the day-to-day was very much one of trying to understand the terrain, the environment, that force pro at the end was going to be critical and then try to utilize some level of maneuver missions to assist in that, right? So how do we deny enemy the freedom of maneuver, right? That's both from an infill, you know, mission accomplishment standpoint as well as a force protection standpoint. So if you can't see it, how do we at least show a physical presence in that area on some regularity to to deter it? But um, it could be very exciting. And a lot of a lot of contact and a lot of crazy things going on or weird stuff you wouldn't expect. And then there could be a few days that go by where absolutely zero happens, mm-hmm. right? And th- the most exciting thing is that the, you know, um, you ran out of bleach and, <laughs> and you can't kill the bugs that are everywhere, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, what impressed me, Andrew, going there as, you know, as an incoming commander and, and doing a, a relief in place uh, was... The first couple of days, I just spent time with the Force Pro guys and just, just studying what the battle rhythms were, what the routine was, what the targets were. And then from that point on, uh, every day I went out on patrols with the patrolling unit, uh, you know, which usually was a plussed-up section um, that had to, to skirt around boulders and over cliff faces and through goat trails. Uh, but what impressed me with uh, with B Troop specifically, and I suspect that this was common up in N2KL, was uh, the cross-training, the, the incredible amount of cross-training that took place among the soldiers. You would see one soldier with uh, you know one weapon system on one patrol and a completely different weapon system on the next patrol, and, and then a completely different one again on Force Pro. And so the proficiency of a, of a saw gunner to pass off the saw and pick up a 50 cal, and to pass off the 50 cal, and, and pick up, you name it, uh, and impress me. But then what was 
almost overwhelming to me was the number of targets that were pre-planned and integrated and specifically that everybody knew the targets. <laughs> and so I just couldn't figure out like how you had memorized so many different targets. And that's when I realized that, um, you know, as, as you had said in a previous conversation with me, Andrew, is that, um, that uh, direct fire, the direct fire weapon systems can provide the standoff, but you really can control the terrain with the indirect fire. And if, if no other weapon system made us uh, more money at Cop Keating, it was the 120s and the 60s. Particularly since the 155 rounds from Bostic were outside of, of range capability for Cop Keating. So, um, just I, I was always impressed. Every soldier could call fire. Every soldier seemed to know the targets. Every soldier could pick up a weapon. Yeah. And something that proved to be very useful, I know, in your experiences, Jake, uh, as, as well as, as ours. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think stands out to me, and you bring up the cross-training piece, is I had very little experience with cavalry organizations. Like, I kind of didn't understand the structure of how a cav squadron worked or a cav platoon. Um, and before you guys got there, I was up helping build uh, Cop Purtle King with 6-4 cav. Um, and they had an OP just up the road from Bar Eli. had just gotten overrun a few days earlier. We're standing up this cop, and they had set up another OP um, above PK. And they said, oh, well, we have a platoon up there. We need you guys to go augment them. Can you send a squad and a gun team? And I said, sure. I said, you know, my infantry platoon has 42 people in it, and I have a scout squad attached to me as well to help you guys out. No problem. And I get up there, and I know a cav platoon is a little bit smaller than mine. Um, but I get up to the top of this OP, and... One of my classmates is up there, Josh Rodriguez, who we were good friends at West Point. And he's like, oh, hey, I'm glad you're up here to help out. And I said, okay, cool. Let me, can you show me around? He's like, oh, yeah, this is the, the OP. And I'm looking around, and I'm counting his, his guys, and he has seven people. And I said, where's the rest of your platoon? He's like, oh, this is, this is the whole platoon. It's like, this is everybody. And with leave and, you know, with casualties and with everything else they had to know how to do everything like mm -hmm. everybody had to know how to call for fire and everybody had to know where the targets were and everybody had to know how to shoot that saw if for no other reason then there just weren't enough people yeah. so we, i imagine the same was probably true of you guys and yeah, we do fancy ourselves pretty sweet like that you know, I, I don't know how else to describe it <laughs> well we're just stupid infantrymen so we can only do one thing at a time yeah no the uh i i think it perhaps was uh, unique to the cavalry organization and, and the personal requirements at the time, but not not specifically just to the cav. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think as you'd said, you know, with your experiences up in Barjmental or even coming down with the QRF, um, we don't always have everyone we want or need, but the, the skill sets are distributed equally, so. Um, so so let's jump to, the, jump to the battle a little bit. The... The battle really started without any shooting, sort of the initiation of, of the of the battle. And let me let me jump back a little bit. Let's jump back in time and space. Where where is everybody sort of physically located on October the third when the when the battle starts? So, so we got we got three platoons at Keating, yep. fifty two soldiers. Uh, that's so two line platoons, first platoon and third platoon, and then headquarters with the mortar section. Up at, at, at Fritchie is uh, another platoon, second platoon, and each location is augmented with ANA. On the 
early morning hours of October 1st, um, we had we had been planning a patrol up the mountain to the OP with elements of 3rd Platoon, and instead a unexpected resupply Chinook uh, came in. And so what we did instead, which was not uncommon, was to take an elevator ride, is what we called it, where we jump on the Chinook. It, it drops us off at uh, Fritchie's LZ on its way out to back to Boston and then on to J-Bed. Um, in this particular case, I got on the bird with uh, the third platoon leader, Ben Salentine, and uh, some leaders from his platoon. And we got on, on the Chinook and uh, um, almost immediately after taking off came under fire um, and one of you know one or a series of the rounds pierced the fuel lines uh, is what I'm told. And so we did some evasive maneuver back to Bostic. That bird continued limping back to JBAD after we got off. And so there we were at at Fob Bostic. And uh, when I had gotten on the bird, I told Andrew that you know should anything happen, he was in charge. And so there he was on on October third in the wee hours in the morning before. This battle began as as the Grand Force Commander uh, there at Cop Keating. Yeah, so like I started to say, there was before the shooting even really started. You had a, something of an inkling that something bad was going to happen. Can you kind of describe what the how that? Came yeah, down? yeah. The leader of the local Afghan National Police Force. Uh, there was a, a local unit, probably twenty or so policemen, um, was in the adjacent village, and and uh, he came up. A few minutes before 0600 and said hey there's a there's a lot of fighters near they're they're going to attack today you know you guys need to need to be ready right they they chased all of us away you know it said you know something along those lines and so the um force pro you know sergeant of the guard you know kind of alerted to that fact we were already at a stand to position so all of our our positions were manned everybody was ready in that aspect but um it's something we've heard and some of the adjacent cops have heard, you know, we were already a slightly elevated at a level of security, but we, you know, got that. And then, you know, two to three minutes later is when actual uh, direct and indirect contact with the enemy began. And what did that, what did that look like? Did it, did it, did it feel different? Did it feel kind of like your, your normal engagement or was it? No, I mean, it didn't, right. It was, it was everywhere. Right. And when I say everywhere, you know, Previously, we'd, we'd taken contact from one, maybe two or three directions, or a mix of direct or indirect fires. Um, but this was very much from everywhere, right? It was um, all the key battle positions we knew about and didn't know about. It was crew-serve weapons. It was small arms weapons. It was indirect fires. It was RBGs. You know, you've got the Dishka mixed in there. You've got B-10 recoilless, right? Just a huge amount of weapon systems and... Um, they were they were targeting key things, uh, so you, you knew it was it was different. And the fact that um, we were being certainly dictated to, as opposed to the other way around. Gotcha. So it wasn't it wasn't so much right because your even your typical firefight right probably had it was a few minutes to an hour, and then. It, more often than not, they're almost just shooting at you to shoot at you. Yeah, I think you, you hit it on the head, right? It was either maybe a short to semi-sustained small arms or, or light crew serve or one to two rounds of, of heavy weapon systems. And then, you know, you kind of overwhelm it, maybe make a, a pass at maneuver if you have the ability to it, and it kind of goes away, right? They're, they're testing you. They're playing around. And I use that term 
not in that way that it's that it's a game, but in the sense that they're they're trying to elicit a reaction sure. and see what happens. Um, and this one wasn't about eliciting a reaction. This was certainly about um, trying to, I guess, trying to trying to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and Stony Fritchie was in in a similar sort of contact. Right at the same, yeah. roughly the same time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what we estimate was r- roughly 300 enemy fighters were surrounding the high ground around uh, Keating, and probably another 85 or so were above Op Fritchie uh, concurrently. Um, so the, you know, I'll, I'll let Andrew describe the battle uh, since I wasn't there. But the the way that I'd found out about it was a call from Case and Schrode, our FSO to our command post back at Fob Bostic, where he uh, explained they were under an an intense attack and the mortars were pinned down and uh, at Keating and wanted to know if if I would approve use of 120 mortars from Fritchie to support Keating. That was a big deal only because our mortar section sergeant up at Fritchie was on leave and so I was putting it into the hands of a PFC. And, uh, you know, as I I had said before I left, he was – he was. Uh, I, I gave him authority for integrating fires and air, uh, and so I, you know, I said, yeah, absolutely, so it's on you. And at that point, he reiterated how bad it was, and the phone went dead. Yeah. And so uh, you know, I ran to the talk to get him up on tax app. Yeah, which is crazy to me because it is, as, as you said in our oral, oral history interview, it was like a movie that the line yeah. just sort of cut out, and that was because the the generator had gotten destroyed, right? That ran all the that powered all the communications. Yep. Yep. I mean, uh, it was hit by an RPG, and so then uh, various ways of communication, you know, Merc Chat, uh, we had phones, um, and then obviously a lot of FM, um, but all that stuff went down. Our localized FM was still good. You had M-bitters, and then obviously everything can run on battery, right? So prepared in those aspects. Um, but the the relay, you could still talk to OP Fritchie, right? You can talk directly to OP Fritchie with local FM, and then um, the relay between Bostic and and Keating is very difficult via FM. So uh, we, we switched to TACSAT, which is a, a brigade net, and uh, kind of commandeered that for the remainder as our, our opportunity to communicate. Yeah, so as you're trying to get a handle on what's going on and, and communications are going down and you're finding emergency ways to talk, what's, what does the fight look like within sort of the walls of the cop? Like what, are, what are soldiers doing at this point? Well, soldiers are doing what, you know, we train and expect from soldiers to do, right? So they're moving towards the guns. They're making sure that they're executing what they're supposed to execute as far as, hey, you know, calling up, you know, sit reps. Hey, we need to suppress here. We need to maneuver there. We, we request fire at this location. We're looking for ammo resupply. Um, I think the biggest thing that's a little bit different, though, is um, we were we were very much using our direct weapon systems as hard as we could push them and, and using you know, supplemental positions to the best that we could, whether it was a, trying to set up a machine gunner behind a generator that then maybe didn't work out quite as well as we'd like it to, but um, trying to do those things to suppress the enemy with direct fire. But the direct fire does not allow you to control the terrain mm-hmm. and maneuver the enemy the way you need to funnel them in order to control the battlefield. And so without the ability to, to use our motor pit, which was completely um, you know, plunging fire directly into it on the edge of the cop. Uh, it really made it difficult for us to um, control the situation. You and know, for the, the first little bit, we were certainly being dictated the tempo. Yeah, the, what was particularly precarious about Keating's uh, position 
uh, geographical positioning up in, in the northeast is you're looking at an hour to two hours to be able to get air support. Uh, we were outside of the max effective range of the 155 777s uh, from Bostic. And then, ironically, Keating was closing at the time. And so uh, in, in the days preceding the attack, we had been taking down some of the barriers on the outposts. Uh, we, the, the very little amount of covered and concealed positions there were, covered and concealed resupply routes that there were, now were uh, largely no longer intact. Yeah. And so that, that only, I think, problematized what B Troop was facing at Keating at the yeah, time. Yeah, sometimes forget that we were, we were cutting down trees, we were removing HESCOs, you were, you were moving that stuff in order to allow Exfil, yeah, really. that's right. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the most interesting things about the way you're describing the battle opening, maybe I I thought as as we talked about walking around today, I thought it was a similar sort of experience that a lot of other people have had, but I don't think it's the case where the enemy really is dictating the fight to you. The enemy really has planned and prepared and is executing. A deliberate plan against your your positions. You know, we had a similar experience uh, in in Barjwitz Hall, where you know you you can see the enemy assaulting your positions, and it just it was a very different experience than than other firefights we've been in. So I can imagine. So what is that? What did when when was there the acknowledgement? Was it that initial initiation that like this is this is different? This is something that. <laughs> No, I think you make a great point about the the enemy getting a say, right? They they definitely get a say, and um, I don't know that it was initially right away. You knew it was different quickly, but I think you still thought, okay, well, we're gonna do A, B, C, D, E, F, rock this out, move on with the day, sure. we'll be good to go, right? Um, but it wasn't long before you realized that that they were yeah, exactly right. They were assaulting. They were. They were maneuvering us the way they wanted to, mm-hmm. right? And um, how to break that was was really the challenge, right? So how do we how do we regain fire superiority in some fashion um, to get the freedom to maneuver? Um, and and they certainly made it very difficult for quite some time in order for us to do that. And, and fortunately, soldiers were able to. Um, you know, employ what they needed to employ. We were able to to get a lot of support, you know, relatively quickly into that that window Stoney's talking about, you know, that two-hour range and bringing, you know, fixed-wing rotary aircraft on and off and employ some different indirect fires eventually. That allowed us to to, to change that, right, and to start dictating to them. But Well, no, I mean, to, to contextualize that a little bit, I mean, just to, some, some stats for you from the battle analysis. Um, so, uh, you know, they initiated the attack with sniper RPGs, B-10, PKM, uh, mortar fire, and explosions rocked the camp on average of every 20 seconds for the first three hours of the battle. Every 20 seconds an RPG or a mortar round impacted onto the the cop and or the OP. Um, and then if you'll remember, the, the fighters had put um, petrol, put put uh, uh, gas in the RPG rounds. Yeah. So when they were hitting the buildings, the buildings began to catch on fire. And yeah. so uh, you, you talk about that immense amount of, of indirect and direct fire 
and then the the buildings are now catching fire mm-hmm. and the mortars are pinned down and uh and, and here's you know Andrew orchestrating uh, a fire and maneuver response to that uh with with limited resources right. so. what what I find interesting about about sort of the initiation and and all those explosions is again talking back to the preparation and the and the planning piece from the enemy side it wasn't random shooting it seems as though it was a deliberate they aimed at the mortar pit because again they knew the mortars could control the terrain more so than the direct fire and they aimed at specific targets that that were high value to them is that is that about right i mean yeah i i think it's no doubt that they knew what they wanted to to initiate with and how they wanted to what what they wanted to suppress and need to suppress in order to be successful right so mortar pit they looked at our high volume direct fire locations and then mm-hmm. um, they keyed in on battle drill locations, right? So they've been watching us for the better part of six months and, and the unit previous, right? They have a general idea of how people move. Um, even though you, you may vary an entry or an exit point uh, to initiate or, or finish a battle drill, right? Hey, I'm gonna go to this battle position this way this time, but next time I'm gonna go that way. Well, there's only two ways to get there. You know, they had certainly enough resources to channel uh, people, right? Yep. And and I think they did a you know they did a uh, a job of that. Well, and you know, you were up in in Barge Matal for the preceding months, mm-hmm. um, but then y'all left, right? We pulled we pulled out as, yep. as an army out of Barge Matal. Yep. Yeah, that was uh, beginning of September. Yep. That's right. And so you know, there's a power vacuum. Mm-hmm. The the nearest two bases to Barge Matal then is either Lowell or Keating. And Lowell was held by uh, Alpha Troop. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, you have, I, I don't remember what the estimates were, somewhere around 600 Taliban fighters at one point up in Barja Matal. Yeah, it was about, the, and, I think that's what it peaked out at, something and, like that. And so, I mean, you know, that starts to, to degrade and attenuate, but those guys, they start moving south. And so the ability for those fighters to plug into uh, a a network that knew Keating and knew the the routines that we had, I think, enabled them to to set up this attack the yeah. way they did. Well, and I, I think that's I think that's valid too because one of the one of my big memories from doing the QRF portion was was um, you know seeing the bodies coming down of of Taliban that were killed by aerial munitions and seeing just how well equipped they were. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like your standard guy who just has an AK-47 in his house. You know, we my, my 240 gunner killed those two guys, and yeah. we cleared the bodies, and they had AK-47s and RPGs and grenades and chest rigs and, well, and then nice we, rifles. That's and, right. And further, in further fights, I mean, we faced enemy with digital camouflaged uniforms yep. and night vision. I yep. mean, it was, you know, you think you have an idea of, of the enemy that you're fighting, and, and I think um, th- this enemy was certainly well equipped. Yeah. So, so kind of walk me through the the initiation happens. You you take a few casualties sort of right off the bat. What's the what's the next couple steps here? We're trying to get assets on station and and gain gain the upper hand again. Yeah. So at a very high level, otherwise I think we could probably talk for hours on the topic. At a very high level, it's. Um, Understand what we have from an accountability standpoint. Uh, mass your firepower where you can and protect what you can. So 
at that point in time, we can't hold everything, right? So make some very difficult decisions of how we're going to maneuver forces. And then um, strategically work towards using platforms the way you wouldn't normally, right? So how do we leverage things at Bostic that normally we would never use and, and probably take a little bit more calculated risk than we historically would with how close we're going to use munitions, how aggressive we're going to be with that um, in order to, to start to dictate the tempo to the enemy. And so I think we did that in a number of ways. So I, I had mentioned we, we kind of maneuvered and, and in some ways you fell back to, to strategic positions on the cop. We utilized rotary wing as it was available immensely when, when it was on. We were going to use it until they were black on ammo and then we're going to send it back for something else, right? Because mm-hmm. we needed it. We tried to utilize, you know, A-10s when they did come up, you know, how close can we get gun runs down, right? So they were right on top of us and at points in time, you certainly on the cop, right? We're fighting on on our piece of the earth at that point in time, right? But uh, you really took the approach of we're going to get them off of this area and then we're going to use all those extraneous assets to destroy the enemy around us, right? Um and it, it took a while to do that, but um, I would say that's that's really what was a focus. Now that's a real real high level look mm-hmm. at it. Um, is there is there anything you want to add from a detail standpoint that we should go into, Stoney? No, you're the you're the detail man on this one. <laughs> I you know for me it was just trying to to get the QRF as quickly mm-hmm. as we could there and, and fight down the mountain. Mm-hmm. So well, I'll I'll ask a detail question because I find in teaching military science here at West Point that cadets struggle. To understand the 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 proximity that fighting sometimes happens at. When when did it become clear that they were trying to breach the perimeter? I mean, I think we knew they were assaulting us early on, right? That they were not going to stop with their fixed positions and just fire at us. Um, but I mean, because of kind of the way things had broken down on the initial perimeter and our collapse. It wasn't until someone said, hey, you know, we have positive ID of enemy inside the cop, right? Let's, let's quote him. He said, Charlie's in the water. Okay. <laughs> you know, you got to pull it out. I love it. <laughs> so that was true. So we, we get a report that there's Charlie in the water. It was, it was Someone great. had been watching Platina. Yeah, too many times, <laughs> I guess, right? And, and I mean, the entire, the entire eastern side of the cop that, that the ANA maintained was, was burned. Right. I mean, there was there was zero defense on that. So you knew there was multiple breach opportunities. Um, but once that confirmation's there, then it's okay. You know, guys, you're, it's not like there's a way out, right? There's yeah. this is there's only one shot. We don't get to take our basketball home and go. We don't get to go home and, and leave the game, right? You, you got to try to win. And um, I mean, from a proximity standpoint, I know you know this is on the air, but. 20 feet away, in some cases, right? Um, it can be close. Yeah. yeah. So as you sort of, as stuff is burning and you sort of feel that assault coming and start to start to see people in the cop, there's an effort to collapse the, the perimeter. And did that kind of happen organically or was that something that was pre, pre-planned? No, I mean, I think that happened out of necessity. That would not be something, we had a, a big overlay in the talk um, that showed all of our intersecting, you know, fires, where, you know, strategic gun positions were, all that kind of stuff. So as a leader, you could look at it and say, okay, this is the report I'm getting from this spot and you can understand it. And you used it occasionally. But once all of our other 
you know, super cool digital tools were no longer functioning due to the generator. That is really mm-hmm. the tool we use the most yeah. is the map, right? So, you know, obviously you took it as a maneuver and, and you understand how to use a map, but the fact that you have all your targets on a map and you understand that map, I used the same map for the that whole first six months, right? It had everything that I wanted to, to use. And so you can use all those experiences you previously had. Um, that map and, and Case and Trode's map and mm-hmm. that overlay are really what guided the decisions that we were making as far as where to move people. Now, it's not an easy decision. It's not a popular one to say, hey, we can't necessarily hold that or it's not in our long-term best interest mm-hmm. to do that. But um, I would say it, it, it worked out in the sense that we were able to then control a small part and then understand the situation, right? Mm-hmm. And develop the situation, right? You, you have to make decisions not making a decision is, is really not an option. And, and just saying, okay, maybe it'll change in a minute. Right? Mm-hmm. You need to, to be the aggressor and, and take it back. And so by doing that, we were able to really harness resources, the limited ones we had. And then Bostic was able to really, or you know, Above was able to come through with things like QRF and push mm-hmm. a massive amount of resources our direction. Yeah, cause, and, cause, and that's really what turned it. Yeah, because Tony, you were involved a lot in mm-hmm. in that fight because you're at Boston, you're at the squadron headquarters, yeah, and you I, have the ability to reach out and, and touch I, people. And I knew Keating, and I knew kind of what the default positions were, of course. The the interesting thing here with, with collapsing, though, real quick before we move on with it, is that you know, I, I, Keating was a, originally uh, settled with the idea of, a, of an infantry company holding it in a, in a cab troop, as you defined earlier, is, is much, much uh, fewer men. And, um, you know, you consider there were 52 soldiers at Keating itself when uh, when the attack initiated. And throughout the course of the day, um, eight, eight of those soldiers were killed in action. Uh, we had 19 Purple Hearts. Well, you very, very quickly... Uh, sink beneath the 60% threshold to be combat ineffective at that point. And, um, and so I, that is one of the reasons where it made sense. It was a necessity to collapse into a smaller uh, perimeter. But then second is, you got to remember, there's, there are a few covered and concealed routes to resupply ammunition. And, and that was probably our single biggest contributor to casualties on the battlefield were soldiers trying to run ammunition out to these satellite locations mm-hmm. that were necessary to hold on to things like the mortar pit, you know, a, a, you know, absolutely essential piece of terrain. And so, um, you know, there's, there's obviously sacrifice involved in that, but uh, you, you, you know, it makes sense once you contextualize it in, in that way. Um, for as far as the QRF was going, I mean, I you know I jumped on two different medevac birds within the first uh, hour to get to Keating, uh, neither of which could land at the LZ because the first time it was still too hot, and the second time the Taliban owned the LZ uh, and several other areas. And so I remember being handed, uh, you know, my first time back with the first attempt at the medevac uh, infill. Uh, being given a, a an overlay of Keating, and there's red all in these surrounding areas where it symbolized Taliban owned. And then, you know, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, when I came back a second time after the second failed attempt to infill via the medevac, um, you know, that red had inched its way onto Keating, and now I saw the Shura buildings, Taliban owned. We had thought that the mortar pit was Taliban owned, the ANA side Taliban owned. And so you can see the visual depiction. 
And I remember at that point, that's when you and I started talking with, yep. with uh, you know, Captain Sachs and, and others about how we do this. And, you know, I think we, we all eventually agreed that, uh, well, and really we're mandated with, with the squadron commander of, look, the only sure way to get the QRF in there and now is is to go and land via Fritchie and fight our way down the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was what was, was incredible from the QR, QRF perspective. Is again, we had been picked up to do a lot of these sorts of things, but it was it was the the absolute urgency that we might show up and there might not be a cop left for us to retake. Like that was that was very much on the table. Yeah, um, I remember when, the, when we the, got told. That's right, the attack the pilots. Right, yeah. I mean, they were there in their in their um, uh, Apaches were smoking yep. because they were so riddled with holes. Uh, on, on the bellies of them. And I remember talking to one of them, I was like, how's it going? And he's got this uh, really nervous look on his face and he just says, I, don't, I just don't know if they're going to make yeah. it. And that was after the first run, Andrew, uh, that that conversation, conversation yeah. took place because those two Apaches you know, could not go back into the fight. And so yeah. now it was a matter of getting more air support there quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, that, and, and the discussion that was had with the QRF stuff we did, we talked about different places to land and it was, we just said, hey, weather's potentially coming in. We have one platoon right now. There's another one following up. We just need to get bodies physically out there. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter. Just get them out there. Um, and I don't know what you guys... Did you guys even get word that we had landed, that we... Yeah, I mean, so we knew it was in the works. Yeah. Um, pro- you know, we probably requested it way after it was in the works, right? I'm, I'm very confident. I actually, I know. I know Colonel Brown and the yeah. team at, at uh, Bostic, along with Stoney, were, were working way sooner to get a QRF to us than we ever even said, hey, we're going to need help. Um, and so we were aware that something was happening, but by the just the nature of where it's at, you know, it's not like you're rolling trucks up there in 30 minutes, right? It's just not going to happen. And the fact that we didn't own the LZ, and we knew it. We didn't own the mortar pit. Well, I mean, in the sense that we could use it. Our, right. We still owned the actual yep, terrain, right. but we couldn't use it. Um, and and you don't really have easy access points outside of Fritchie. You knew it was going to be a while, yeah. right? So I think we knew that we were, we were on our own in the sense that we had to maintain what we could right. and then go get what we could and get accountability of our people. Um, but I never felt like we couldn't win. That is one thing I don't think ever kind of came across our mind. And I can see from the air view, right, you're going, man, this this is brutal, right? They didn't even make it all the way onto Keating when mm-hmm. they checked on. We're talking to them, but they didn't even get all the way to us before yeah. they had to turn around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they they did a lot of work, even though they didn't get, quite get to us. But um, I, don't, I don't think we ever felt alone in that aspect. I, we knew it was going to come, figured it would make it in time. It was just a matter of how do we best use it and get there? But it was certainly um, appraised of what was going on with the QRF, but it, yeah. I don't think it was front of mind. It was not yeah. something we could worry about. It was not something that, that we didn't have faith that someone was going to come and, and uh, try to help us out, though. Bundy, you previously talked about how um, the air support really helped kind of turn the tide. Um, and you've talked a little bit about in the past about the the uh, discussion back and forth about engaging targets. Um, what what was it? What what was it about their approach and that they provided that that enabled you to kind of take that initiative back? You know, I think the big thing is once you're talking to them and and they're they're providing you with little information. They they have a little bit of an idea of what's going on, mm-hmm. but they're looking around. They're going, 
I'm not sure what I should shoot, right? They may be shooting in defense, right? There was a dish up there that they were working really hard to, to locate so that we could bring in additional yeah. aircraft. Um, but they're really relying on us to say, what do you want me to target? And their ability to quickly, and I'm, I'm not just talking rotary wing, I'm talking mm-hmm. fixed, um, both of them. And quickly, once they were there, eliminate the targets we wanted eliminated and have the ability to coordinate it, right? So Kaysen did a really nice job coordinating and clearing airspace so that we could use so many airframes and weapon systems at one time. The ability to, to really harness that and to um, position fires appropriately is what it really allowed us to do it. So at that point in time, we're going, okay, this is our priority list. Kaysen, make sure they hit it. I want this weapon system here. I want this one there. Let's do it in this order. Okay, got it. He's going to go do that. Now we can focus on, let's just go and take back what we can take back. And then you can focus on maneuvering and using your direct fire weapon systems, right? All of a sudden, if you've got 500-pound bombs blowing up right next to you, maybe you're not going to shoot back for a second. And that's really, you don't need a lot of time to regain that initiative. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what, that's what allowed us to regain a little initiative. And then we took one win. Right, the ability to take one thing back changes the whole complexion of the battlefield. Yeah. Right, because then you know, at that point in time, say, okay, we we've, we've got it back, yep. and that was the sure point in the ECP. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, I knew we were going to win. It's just a matter of how long it was yeah. going to take. Yeah. And there's a talk about, uh, you know, that I've, I've heard from Clint Romache about what it meant symbolically uh, to the troop to be able to close the gate at the ECP. Yeah. yeah. Like, and you know, I mean. And it and, and the effort and, and sacrifice that it required just to close the gate. Can can you describe that? Yeah, I mean, it took half a dozen guys. You know, it took us several attempts to go back. I mean, we blew up a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we were looking at how close you can drop two thousand pound bombs, right? Two thousand, yeah. one thousand, yeah, two thousand pound JDM. Um, how close, right, is too close. And, I mean, you're dropping this stuff just outside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I never dreamed you'd be dropping munitions outside 100 meters away from from that location, right? And, and you're going, you know, these walls are 18 inches. That one was a concrete-slash-mud building, mm-hmm. and the roof was essentially collapsed, and the walls were caving in, but mm-hmm. the guys inside of theirs were taking this back, and, you know, he's going, hey, it's collapsing. We're inside of here, and, you know, I actually say, hey, do you want me to hold off on the next one? It's like, no, if it falls, it falls. We'll see what happens, right? Because the yeah. alternative the alter- mm-hmm. alternative is not any better, right? And I give a lot of credit to, to those pilots, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And, and the equipment that we have, right? There's huge supply chains that allow the United States Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marine Corps to be successful, and a lot of people support that. And after I got out of the Army, I realized how deep that service goes to mm-hmm. make that equipment, to make those things, and the amount of care that a person on a production line puts into making sure that that giant piece of munition is going to land exactly where you want it to. And I have a whole new appreciation mm-hmm. uh, for someone that is a world away that has no idea how it's going to be used, but it will possibly one day save the lives yeah. uh, of, of yeah. American soldiers. Well, you know, and I think just to kind of, to complicate it a little bit, the uh, you know while while you and Case and Schrode and others were coordinating air uh, at Keating, you know there there was uh, Jake's platoon and Justin Sachs and me, and we are concurrently uh, talking to those same pilots and dropping, you know. 
every other bomb (laughs) on our side of Keating (laughs) as we're making our way down with the QRF. And I remember we've got 30 uh, fighters at this position. Are you, you know, are we clear to drop this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Roger, drop that. Okay, we see there's another 20 over here by the diving board. There are now 20 again over by the switchbacks. We've got this many that are fleeing from... Uh, you know this this village they are armed no those are not our guys you know and and again and again and uh, what an incredible uh, you know complex array of, yeah. of support yeah well well and like we talked about earlier when when we actually landed up at Fritchie it seemed you know as bad as the situation was down Keating it seemed like it had started to stabilize a, yeah, a little absolutely. bit it, we weren't still losing ground there was a feeling that that the tide if it hadn't turned was was pretty close to turning and but we were worried about getting trapped on the mountainside we were worried that the focus would become us as we were coming down Mm -hmm. and yeah the aviation like cleared cleared the way for us because there was no overwatch we just walked and said well shit it's going to take us a10s f15s and apaches it's going to take us four and a half five hours to get down we just need to go so y'all are taking andrew uh you know a a building at a time back yeah Yeah. while we are taking a step at a a time down (laughs) the mountain and at about dusk we reach an overwatch point to yeah. to really yeah. be able to start because we, we had to bound down the switchback that's right we set up that sort of orp thing at the top of the switchbacks mm-hmm. and then i we had a squad in overwatch and i sent mm-hmm. a squad to the first corner of the switchbacks mm-hmm. and then a squad bounded through that corner to the next corner when, and then in the, the next squad time, bounded was like down, seven of them and there were like seven yeah. of them in the entire time we're passing over and yep. by yep you know the the Expired Taliban fighters yep. at this point. Yeah. I mean, and then we do. We get to you know 200 meters out, and then we're coming in through that yeah. little serpentine yeah. wire thing in the south end of the car. Yep, right over the top of the mortar pit. That's yeah. right. And I don't know. You know, I can't even remember who we were talking to because there was some coordination. Because the only battle position that maintained its location and combat effectiveness through the whole day was the Mark 19, right next to the aid station. Right. It was able. It, it never was went on down. That? Copes. <laughs> so Copes was on it. So Copes. from all day. So from what was that? He started probably on a little before six is when he started his his shift on there, hmm. and until dusk, right? And I don't even know how many links and boxes of empty Mark Nineteen were out there, right? But um, the coordination to make sure that as as they were coming down, you know, because it was continuous outbound. Well, and nerves of still because he he. Had- it was continually fired oh, upon oh, from all directions. He got all kinds of things coming in there. I can't believe that thing stayed up, yeah. right? I mean, just the the number of RPGs mm-hmm. in the side, you know, that hit the truck, um, and he kept rolling. Um, and the only only cover was the turret, mm-hmm. and then that uh, that blanket, that blanket, right? <laughs> so it had you know the it was a Kevlar blanket, a yeah. Kevlar blanket with you know on wood sticks from the corner of of the turret, and and that was all that was behind him. Jeez, just it's incredible. Did a great job. Um, so I want to make sure we get this this one story because I think it's an incredible story. So as our QRF, QRF guys come in, we start clearing. I come into, I guess it would be your your platoon's barracks where the talk is sort of set up. Yep. Um, I introduce myself to First Sergeant and, and Kaysen and I meet up. But as I'm walking by, I walk by Stefan Mays yeah. getting you know blood direct. Yeah pumped into his body by another soldier. Can you kind of talk through that? Because it it's an incredible incredible sort of story. I don't know, Sony, if you want to take it. Um, well, I'll tie in a couple of different perspectives. They, you know, Stefan had been pinned in a truck with a handful of soldiers to include um, uh, Justin Gallegos. 
Uh, and, um, and and there was an attempt to to uh, move out of this truck to flee to a covered and concealed position, uh, and they make this attempt. Stefan is hit uh, again, and uh, you know grievously injured. And so there is is Stefan, uh, you know, dragging himself along the ground, trying to catch up with his his section sergeant Justin Gallegos at the time, who is sprinting across a a a, a very intense piece of open terrain uh, that's the enemy are firing upon him and, and very close and and he makes it just to the you know the covenant console position which was actually the latrine a reinforced latrine um, about you know 30 meters away and I, I I'm you know I believe at that point he must have realized that Stefan had been hurt because what we know of the various statements is that he turned around went back and helped pick uh, Stefan up and help him to this covering council position, uh, you know, again, dodging the gunfire and then set up a uh, set up a base of fire to provide support to get these other two soldiers over to his position, one of whom was was Ty Carter. And, and at, at this point, uh, Justin was was killed. Well, um, Ty eventually makes a move uh, to, to recover Mace and bring him back to the, the truck. And Andrew, uh, upon regaining comms, uh, realizes Mace's condition, who had been injured since about six that morning, and then grievously injured a little bit later, and uh, orchestrates a, a a concert of of uh, JDAMs and CCA and and support by fire positions to create a bubble, if you will, to get uh, them the ability to evacuate Stefan to the aid station. And uh, Chris Cordova, the the doc, the he's our, our squadron surgeon, a, a physician's assistant. Who had never, you know, been formally trained on on whole blood transfusions in the midst of combat, <laughs> determines that, that Stefan, who's lost consciousness and is looking quite pale, needs uh, blood and now, but there's no LZ from which to evacuate him, um, and no medevac coming, and so uh, he confirms his his blood type, and uh, a soldier steps up and and starts. Donating a unit of blood, and he, so Chris, you know, puts a an IV line in in and uh, um, Stefan hooks it up to a bag of anticoagulant, and the other IV line in the soldier, and they start drawing blood. And it was Floyd, was wasn't it? Floyd was the first one. Yeah, yeah that battle roster that that gets filled out all the time comes yeah. in handy, right? Yeah, that's I, right. It was it was that's right. crazy that call comes. Hey, do we have a we know who's a positive. We have battle roster we can look at, yeah. right? Um, so continue. so yeah so. Uh, uh, you know, he, he takes the unit, and all of a sudden, he regains some composure, and he starts opening his eyes. And oh my God, he's 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 alive. He's going to make it. He's going to. He wants to say something. He's moving around. He's trying to trying to clear his throat, and everybody's leaning in to hear what the amazing words could be that Stefan wants to share with everybody. And he asks for a cigarette, <laughs> and um, uh, and so you know, Chris has to deny him the cigarette, but then someone else makes fun of the fact that he's got. Uh, Floyd's blood in him, and is now potentially less of a man. I think they had a, a friendly competition going on. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but you know, throughout the day, these soldiers would would leave their battle positions to come to the aid station to give a unit of blood to Mace, and then head back. And um, you know, at one point, Chris realizes, "Hell, I'm I'm the only one nearby available," and gives his own blood. And then at another point, you know, he goes to Andrew, and Andrew's. You know, command in the fight, and um, he says, "Hey, there's no one left." 
And Andrew says, yeah, stick me. Let's okay. do this. So um, it was, it, you know, there was something about the, spot, the fighting spirit of Stefan that helped, you know, I believe the soldiers identify, uh, you know, with this, this will, this willpower. And, uh, you know, when the medevac birds finally landed after uh, your platoon and Ben Salentine's platoon secured the LZ, um, there was May's first one evac um, You know, unfortunately, we found out uh, later that night that, it, that Stefan didn't make it, um, which was a, an immense blow to the unit. But, um, you know, an incredible story. And there's, you know, for every story like that, there's another... 10 that I could tell you um, but you know I I don't know what it was like uh, for you Andrew at that time but I can only imagine you know with Chris being surrounded by injured soldiers and, and dead and or dying soldiers all day long and still have the ability to stay calm cold and collective under pressure so. yeah I mean as as the battle wound down I mean what what kind of what what when when Stony came and kind of reassumed command, what was the your feeling? Was it a was it a feeling of relief? Was it a feeling of okay, now I need to go do my platoon leader job? What what yeah. was going through your head? You know, that's it's tough to say. I, I we had stuff we had to go do, and the number of people on the first several you know medevacs out was pretty significant. If you guys remember, mm-hmm. um, and so you know we had mixture of the QRF. Ben, myself, in some ways, you know, over the next couple of days, you got people that would normally not work on, say, creating a sling load. I'm out there working on sling loads, right? I mean, you just, it was a different kind of situation for the next couple of days. And I think it was, um, it was, it was different. I don't, I don't necessarily know how to, I don't have a great answer for yeah, that one. I mean, I know from, from sort of an outsider's perspective, we, you know, not to this level of intensity, but we had similar situations to, to this and, I was very impressed, though, with the way that the the soldiers at Keating and in Black Knight Troop were able to focus on the task at hand. That was, I think, that was our my big takeaway as someone coming from the outside looking at it and seeing, okay, these guys are, you know, they're out pushing out to the HLZ, they're getting stuff ready to get out of here, they're, you know, they're still doing their job. There wasn't a lot of, I think, hiccups. Yeah, I think you're right, and there, and there was a focus. For one main reason, among the QRF and, and the guys that remained at Keating, and that's to be quite frank, we we thought there was going to be a counterattack. Yeah. Uh, we we did not think it was over, yeah. and in fact, when we got pop shots for the next couple of days, but um, so we went right to work for the defenses, um, and, and and then you know, a, not an admission, but but uh, certainly something that should that I want to make clear, and that is that. Um, we were a good team because we were surrounded and filled with good people. And I leaned heavily on Andrew and Ben and Jordan and Kaysen and Rob and, and the other platoon leaders and platoon sergeants, as I'm sure they did their subordinate leaders. And it's, it's when you're in a situation like that where you rely on others in such a, uh, a close way that um, there's, you're not really thinking about at least for me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Andrew, but you're not really thinking about the um, anything other than what is essential, right? There's a great question that I heard you asked previously, uh, Andrew, about um, how was morale 
for these soldiers in such an austere climate, right? And this was years ago, you know, that you, you were talking about it, but how was morale for those soldiers? Pretty miserable? I, it was a tough way to live. I don't know that I would say morale was yeah. miserable, though. You said, you, what you told, you know, what I remember you saying is that it was surprisingly high because the soldiers were doing exactly what they had signed yeah, up to sure. do. Yeah. I think the conditions were tough. Sure. But, you know, you guys have been around soldiers, right? There's, there's a level of embracing the... The suck. The suck or the <laughs> shitty. Um, and, and there's a level of pride that then comes with your ability to say, I'm better than that. Sure. Right. And there's a professionalism that comes with our soldiers that I think sometimes we take for granted. And um, it, it's a privilege to spend time with them. It's a privilege to lead them. And uh, I don't know. I... I I still maintain that being a platoon leader in the United States Army is the greatest job in the world. Well said. Right. Well, it seems like as good a place as any to, to cut it off. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the combat stories we feature on The Spear, please take just a moment and leave us a rating or give us a review. Thanks again for listening.